for me, like I actually like being in the corner with my back up against the wall because it forces me to figure a way out. And I'm not feeling that just yet, or at least not to a degree where I feel like I'm in trouble. But if I do, I'm going to figure a way out of it. I don't know what that is right now, but you, you get creative with it. What's going on, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli. And every week on this show, I sit down with top athletes, coaches, and personalities in the sport of running for long-form conversations that I hope will inspire you, educate you, or impact you in some way. This week, we are not going to have one of those conversations. Well, I hope it will be educational, maybe inspirational, impactful to some degree, but you are going to hear from me. I am going to be on the mic with John Summerford, who I typically mention in the closing notes at the end of the show. He is my audio ninja here at the Morning Shakeout podcast. He has edited, mixed, produced, I don't know what the terminology is, every episode of this show to date, all 103 that precede this one. And I am thrilled to have him on the other side of the mic. And before we get into the Ask Me Anything portion of this show, we are going to hear from John. I'm going to hit him with a few questions so you can get to learn a little bit more about who he is, what he does, his relationship with running. Maybe he'll tell the story of how we got connected uh, and kicked this whole thing off a little over two years ago. So without further ado, John Summerford, welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. All right. Thanks for having me. I'm a longtime listener. <laughs> you, I, I know for sure you have listened to every episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast, and uh, even my wife. I don't even know if she has. So, yeah. um, other than the the two of us, uh, I'm not sure who is who is tuned into every episode. But it's great to have you on. Uh, I'm excited to do this Ask Me Anything episode with you. But I'm more excited for listeners of the show to learn a little bit more about who you are. So let's start there. Who the hell are you and what do you do? Uh, who the hell am I? In part of your intro, you talk about having people on behind the scenes on. And I guess I'm <laughs> somewhat one of You're those. about as behind the scenes as they come with this show. Yeah, well, You make it happen, man. I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent. Well, let's talk about how we met. We met through a website called Upwork. Uh, you had recorded an interview with Scott Fobble in 2017. Correct. And you were looking for somebody to... Edit the sound, and you got quite a few requests for the position, and I th- haven't gone back and, and read my, my, my uh, proposal to you, but I think I talked about running in high school and thought it was an interesting project. Yeah, you totally set yourself apart because not only did you take the time to write me back, and for everyone who's listened to this, Upwork how the website works is you post a job and a bunch of people can essentially apply for it or bid on it. Yeah. And a lot of the people who bid are just content farms or, or, or let's call them, I guess in this case would be like, you know, audio editing farms that are offshore somewhere and they just turn these jobs over very quickly and nothing against those, but that's not what I was looking for. You set yourself apart because you wrote me back a very, personalized note telling me how you ran cross country in high school, how you have been working on sound for the last, you know, several years. It's what Mm -hmm. you do for a living. You actually took, because I could post the audio file to the job, you actually took the file and sent me back a snippet of 
you know, two minutes of the conversation, the unedited version and then the edited mixed mastered, whatever you want to call it version. And I was like, sold, done. (laughs) Uh, And we haven't stopped since. Here we are, 104 episodes later, and you have listened to, edited, mixed, mastered every single one of them. Yeah, uh, that's. I also played the little guitar riff we heard probably about three or four minutes ago. Well, and that came in, what, I think like probably 30 episodes in or so. I can't remember exactly when we put music into it, but the first like at least two dozen episodes of this podcast, if not three or four dozen episodes of this podcast, I really can't remember at this point, had no intro at all, no music, no ads, no nothing. It was just right into the intro. I would yeah. just say, John Summerford, welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. And we would get right into it. And I, you know, I, I missed some of the simplicity of, of that, but I like yeah. what you have done with the show from a structural standpoint, because you are largely responsible for the format that we've been following for the last year plus you created the music yourself with your brother or one of your other bandmates, I believe. Yeah, and I, I love it. Cause I searched high and low for a long time for music. You were sending me, you know, all these different places that I could go find beats for the show. And then you're like, let me, let me take a stab at it myself. And you got it like pretty much in like one take. I was like, yeah, I dig it. I dig it. And <laughs> we've just been, we've been going with it ever since. So all of you out there listening, this show would not be, what it is today without the man on the other side of the mic, John Summerford. So, John, let me. I thank you at the end of every episode. <laughs> I thanked you profusely in person when we did meet uh, last year, I guess, at this point. But thank you again for everything that you've done for the Morning Shakeout podcast. It would not be where it is without your handiwork. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And and one thing that working on this show has really exposed me to is the community. I think the closest I really ever had to a running community is maybe in the music community. Just kind mm-hmm. of being in different bands, going to shows, supporting each other. That's really where I came from. I, th- I think like a, probably a lot of your listeners, I played soccer in high school. I ran a little in high school. But after that, it, I'd never, I wasn't really on any, any running teams. I still don't meet up with anybody to run. I just, just forever, I would, after work, I'd go run two, three miles until I sweated and <laughs> felt like I got some of the evil out and... I just always kind of had that relationship with it. And uh, were you actually on the cross country team in high school? I was. I was. I did cross country for freshman and sophomore year, and I did track okay. for one year. And anything about that team atmosphere that stuck out to you that you miss or yearn for? I think at the time I didn't. I don't know if I appreciated or really noticed. Now that I'm a little older, I think I would appreciate that environment more. But at the time, it just felt nice to be around people that were doing the same thing I was doing. I'm a competitive person, but not with other people. I'm competitive with myself. Like I know when I am hitting a goal then and it's hitting me the right way. But it doesn't really have a lot to do with other people. So like I don't don't remember what my cross-country time was. I remember what my mile time was because I was trying to improve that. Have you always been that way? I think so. I think so. I think I didn't always know that about myself. When did you learn that about yourself? Was it during high school? Was it after? Oh, man. I would say, I I think I started to notice it in high school. And then when I got into my kind of mid to late 20s, when I started freelancing, then it became really apparent. 
because like my monetary success like became tied to what I was focusing on and how I was focusing on things. Back to running, you had mentioned how you knew your mile time and you wanted to improve upon that. Yeah. Do you remember that first mile race when you set a mark and you were like, okay, this is it. I am a whatever it was, six something miler, five something miler. Next time I do this, I want to be a little bit faster than that. The, the only one that really stood out to me was, I think I got like a 502 or a 503 and I got third place. And it was almost like I wasn't, I didn't really put in a, a decent effort until that point. But something about that particular race, I don't know, it just brought it out of me. And I remember seeing that number and seeing like, well, 502 is almost close to 459. <laughs> what could I do to get those three seconds off? Is that still your personal best to this day? Yeah. <laughs> and you have a little challenge that you have given yourself that I know about because we talked about it and you mentioned it to me on a call a few weeks ago where you would like to go back and compete with John Summerford of the early 2000s in a one mile race. Is that not correct? <laughs> the skinnier version of me with worse posture. Yeah, I had a PR when I was 15 and in a couple months I'll be 30. So I had the idea to go back and beat my my half-life PR, I guess. There's something that's cool about that. I mean, for me, in 2018, when I broke my marathon PR at CIM, I was 36 years old, and I had set my previous marathon PR 11 years prior, and it felt like a different lifetime um, when I had done that because I was 25 at the time, a lot younger, a lot less responsibilities. Running, for me, was what I was most focused on and I set this mark which was pretty solid um, and to come back you know 11 years later in my mid-30s and run faster than I had done 11 years prior with a lot more on my plate more responsibilities mm -hmm. uh, to me what felt like a little bit less training but probably some more maturity was a fun challenge to undertake and, and I was in a place where I really wanted to do it, but if I didn't do it, it wouldn't have ruined me. Mm -hmm. um, and doing it was really gratifying, but what was even more gratifying was the process of trying and preparing and overcoming some of the unique challenges that I faced just because of you know, my lifestyle and other responsibilities that wouldn't allow me to train quite as hard as I did 11 years prior. And for me, that was the, the real takeaway. So to hear that... You know, that inspired you to take on this challenge of beating, you know, beating, beating the John Summerford that's half your age mm -hmm. um, is, is pretty cool. And I hope you can continue to stay on that path and push yourself. And whether you do it or not is almost irrelevant. But what you learn about yourself in the process of trying to do so is the big takeaway. Totally. Totally. You, you mentioned having like a difference in like focus or pressure from when you were 25 versus, you know, just the other year. I, I definitely can relate to that. I, I, I feel like when I was younger, I, I, didn't, I didn't really work towards goals. I kind of just floated around, if that makes sense. And yeah, and I think most of us in our younger years operate that way. Totally, totally. And, and to me, part of uh, getting older and, and, maturing and, and kind of growing into my career has been 
I plan things out now. I have a, a goal and a game plan. And I don't know, I, I, running kind of, it, it, it wasn't really a social thing for me. It was more of like a therapeutic thing for me. And I have a lot more respect for it now. And I think kind of going back and beating that mile time is almost a way to, to kind of honor that and honor myself and kind of acknowledge uh, sort of a period of growth in my life and kind of have a, a good energy going forward. I love it, man. Well, that inspires me to continue <laughs> to stay on it in, in my own life. No, seriously. And I think that's, I mean, you know, especially given the state of the world these days, I think that's yeah. our purpose is to help each other out. And sometimes we're helping one another out without even knowing it. So you expressing that to me right now, I'm telling you, like that's going to inspire me to stay on it and continue to push myself and see what's possible despite the challenges that I might be facing. Mm -hmm. So carry on, um, keep on keeping on. I hope that, you know, you stay with it. Um, you lean on me for help when you need it. And I think a lot of people listening to this, even though they're just hearing from you for the first time are going to be inspired by that message. Cause I think we, whether it's a sub five minute mile or some other time and distance that we want to chase or just some other goal that we want to go after in our life, why not now? And I think that's the, the big takeaway from all of this. Well, I might be looking for a coach, Mario. I don't know if you offer that kind of service. I can help you out, buddy. <laughs> um, you've been such a tremendous help to me. How could I not? Um, when did you fall back into running after high school? Once you got into your career, you started to figure things out for yourself professionally. When did it become this outlet for you to get out for a mile or three miles or whatever it was at the end of the day to just sort of clear your head? As with most things in my life, I didn't really notice its significance until I was much older and I sort of felt the effects of it not being there. And then I kind of put the pieces together like, like this helps me be a, a logical, healthy person. I, I just kind of, I, I played soccer. Uh, I ran for a while. I skateboarded for a long time. Um, then I got an office job <laughs> and I still kept running. I would say that the only time I really stopped running was last year. I, I, I had like a, there's an injury they call tennis leg, I think. And I tore both of my, uh, I'm not sure what the muscle is, but it's like a, a, a calf muscle. Okay. And I, I couldn't walk for a couple of weeks. And then after that, I, I, th I don't think I could run for like nine months. And then I really felt the effects of not running. I don't know. I had, a, I had so much anxiety that I was not being released from that exercise. I mean, lifting weights or doing pull-ups or something like that, it's, I like doing those things, but something about running, you're just speeding along the ground. And I, I listen to music when I run and, and I just sweat. And there's something about that that just, it just releases tension in me. And during that nine-month nine period, I really felt it's the absence, absence of that. Right. It's powerful stuff, man. I think there are a lot of people listening to this who've been in the same boat, whether you know it's injury like you suffered, whether it's work or family life just getting too crazy that it keeps them away from it. Mm -hmm. They realize that it's not about it's not always about chasing a race goal or a time goal, especially in a time right now where a lot of people listening to this because of what's going on in our world aren't going to be chasing a race goal for quite yeah. some time because they're just not going to happen. You've got to find you've got to dig a little bit deeper and find new meaning 
in some cases or discover this meaning that's always been there but you never really were able to recognize it because you were always caught up in the inertia of the day-to-day, the putting in the miles, going to the track on Tuesday night, doing the tempo on Friday, doing the long run on on Sunday. So I appreciate you sharing that. I think that is a, a hugely valuable takeaway mm-hmm. for anyone listening to this right now. I promise all of you listening, we will get into the Ask Me Anything portion of, of this podcast. Uh, there are a lot of great questions that were submitted. I've got a couple more for John that I want to throw at him before we get into that. I'd love to talk about where you're at right now professionally. You work for yourself. You do a lot of sound-related things for podcasters, for musicians. When did your interest in music and sound start to formulate? I started playing guitar when I was 11 or 12, maybe. And I played for the church band until I was, I don't know, 20, 21. And then I played in a punk rock band. That's a pretty logical jump from church into punk rock. (laughs) (laughs) I did that for a few years. And uh, the way it goes a lot of times with bands is there's... I mean, it's 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 kind of a uh, a group of creative people together, and a lot of times there's overlaps with things that you're into. A lot of times there's a graphic design guy, and he'll want to do all the album artwork. Uh, sometimes there'll be like a social media guy, and he'll take care of all the social media stuff. And then there was me. I was, uh, I don't know what you would call it, like the composer or the editor. And I enjoyed, I enjoyed recording, and I liked how everything sounded together and I liked visualizing a band. I liked visualizing all the different pieces together. So that's what I started doing. Uh, I lived in Orange County at the time and I recorded bands for five or six years. Uh, And then I worked at an office job uh, in a call center, (laughs) a now defunct call center. And uh, yeah, the call center laid everybody off and I was kind of faced with, I knew I was not going to work in a call center. I wasn't going to work in customer service my whole life. I knew that. I knew I wanted to do more sound stuff. But it just never really felt like the right time. And then I was almost uh, gifted with an opportunity that I now had all this free time. So I thought, uh, maybe I'll try to do bands full time. And uh, it sort of worked, but I started picking up Uh, different types of work and uh, I started working with podcasts and uh, I did some documentaries um audiobooks I believe yeah I did I did some audiobooks I I have a client in Australia and she's a mindfulness trainer but uh yeah that was 2016 through 2017 about six months before the morning shakeout started yeah so I'm I'm three years into this and it's hard to imagine not doing this for so many years before I started doing it. Right. Because I just, I love it. I love having my favorite part of, of working freelance and having all these different projects and people to work with is I get, I get to help somebody communicate something they're passionate about. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's almost, it's a different form of customer service or it's a different form of being in kind of a band because even though I'm not a drummer, I get to record the drummer. I get to kind of I, I'm in charge of implementing him into the sound. I feel like it's something I'm 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 good at. I'm good at seeing that in other people and kind of bringing it out of them. Well, 
I think you're great at it. I mean, you're part of a team. I mean, when you're a band member, you're part of a team. And with this show and a lot of the other things that you work on, you're part of those respective teams because what people are listening to right now, the finished packaged product in its raw form sounds nothing like what you're listening to out there right now. Um, this one might sound a little bit better because you know what you're doing on the other side of the mic, but you've worked some pretty amazing magic with various gaffes that were maybe my fault, maybe someone on the other end's fault. Um, the edits that you make, like mixing in the music, fading things out and, and putting together, you know, this enjoyable episode that people listen to week in and week out or this album from a band or, you know, this mindfulness teacher's lessons. So I love that. I mean, you're you're a huge part of this team. I say it at the end of every episode. Um, you know, you, Chris Douglas, who does my sponsorship sales, Jeff Stern, who does um, a lot of my social media stuff for the Morning Shakeout. Like, it, it is a team effort, mm-hmm. and I personally love that because I work for myself. Um, I coach. I do this podcast. I write the newsletter, and my name is on all of that stuff. But none of it comes from, I mean, none of it comes from just me. I couldn't do it without the team that I have around me. And for someone in that position, tell me if you feel the same way, when you're at home almost every day working on this stuff, to have other people that you are collaborating with, that you're bouncing ideas off of, that you're learning from, just speaking for myself, it really makes it feel a lot more fulfilling, makes you feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself and I think it helps you to take more pride in the finished product that comes out of it. Definitely. You just feel like you're not on your own. You feel like somebody's got your back. Somebody's uh, somebody's uh, picking up what you might have missed. And it feels good. Last question before we get into the Ask Me Anything portion of this episode. What are you working on right now? Are you taking on new clients? And how can anyone who is listening to this show who might be interested in your services get in touch with you? So, giving I, you some free advertising <laughs> here, man. I appreciate Take it. Take it. I need it, man. I'm in LA. So, uh, I was doing about half of my work online, and I was doing half of my work in person, kind of working on different events, uh, sort of like live pod, podcasting almost. I'm in Los Angeles and I'm kind of in a unique position because everything's canceled. Every in-person thing is canceled. So I do have lots of free time. (laughs) I do have room for new clients. Um, I do have a website. Uh, It's bearsrecords.com. The bears is... That's B-A-R-E-S (laughs) records.com. I'll put it in the show notes if you're looking for a link to it. It's like a pun, like bare bones. Anything that deals with sound or video, um, I, can, I can do all that stuff. And if, if, if you're looking to, to work as part of a team and you're looking to have kind of a second set of ears or, or second set of eyes to, to work with and to kind of bounce ideas off of, that's an environment that I like. And it's something I like to do with people. If, if you're passionate about something, I'd love to be part of it. That's where I'm at right now. Thanks for the advertisement, well, Mario. <laughs> you're very, you're very welcome. Uh, anyone who is listening to this, John is 
clearly very good at what he does. If you've listened to the last 103 episodes of this podcast, they're all his handiwork. Um, the structure of this show, the music, that is all John. This show wouldn't be what it is without him. He is super reliable, very responsive, and he pays incredible attention to detail, which is something that I appreciate. So if you are looking for some help with your audio needs, check them out. That's bearsrecords.com and I will put it in the show notes. All right, let's transition. And you now have the opportunity to hit me with some listener questions for this third Ask Mario Anything episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Yes, sir. I wanted to start with with a, a question that's uh, it's not too specific, and I, I feel like it's relevant to a lot of us out here. This is from Eugene B. How do I train in a time of no race available to run in for the foreseeable future? My gut tells me to base build, but that really throws off the yearly cycle for me. Great question. Probably the most popular one that we received in the past week or so for this episode Look, it's a really challenging and uncertain time right now. All of the spring races in the past few weeks and for the next couple of months have been canceled. There's no Boston Marathon. There's no London Marathon. There's no local 5K. There's no New York City Half Marathon. Like, I mean, you name it. They've all been wiped off the calendar in this country and pretty much around the world. And a lot of them, many of them, have been rescheduled to the fall, which should things go to plan is going to make for a very interesting fall racing season. She got five major marathons, not to mention other big non-major marathons and half marathons that are all going to happen within a very, very abbreviated time frame. And looking ahead, given some of the news that's come out, I'm not overly optimistic that we're going to have a fall racing season of any sort. And that's not to be a complete pessimist. That's just being a realist. And and given how quickly this COVID-19 virus is is spreading through the world, the, the last thing that is probably going to be put back on the calendar is a mass event where people are in close proximity to one another and have to travel in some cases to get to. So circling that back to Eugene's question, what I would recommend right now is to dial everything back. Um, you've got to take your mind out of that race first mindset. Like I am training for this event or this series of event, or I want to be peaked by October and just spend some time re-examining some of your motivations for running. Um, I've encouraged a lot of my athletes to go to their journal and write down why they got started running in the first place. I think it's important to revisit that in a time right now um, because the the quote-unquote yearly schedule is going to be thrown off for the rest of this year and probably a good chunk of next year if we're being honest. So I am having a lot of my athletes dial back the volume. If they were in the middle of a marathon build um, or were at a a point of their training where they were putting in a lot of miles, we're dialing that back to about 75%. We're not doing any super long, long runs. Um, The length of our workouts is going to be pretty short and swift. And And the reason for that is twofold. One, a lot of them who are training for longer races, half marathon, marathon, you're doing a lot of higher end aerobic work. You're doing some pretty voluminous workouts, some long, long runs, and addressing that end of the fitness spectrum. 
And a lot of people get caught into that cycle, as Eugene alluded to, twice a year. They run a spring marathon, they run a fall marathon. And what that does not allow for is to work on your weaknesses. So since we have this uncertain future ahead of us, I am having a lot of my athletes either take like a little bit of a break before we get back into training, but most of them are just dialing things back and we're working on the shorter end of the spectrum. And the reason for that is we don't really work on that sort of like mile 5k up to 10k type of fitness for a focused period of time at any point of the year. And I think we've got at least six weeks to do that right now, if not longer. Um, and the other part of that is we've got to stay healthy as we deal with this COVID-19 pandemic and we've got to keep our immune systems strong and some level of exercise is good and some level of intensity is good. Um, but something that looks like marathon training or ultra marathon training where you've got really high volume, these big, long, long runs, you're going to compromise your immune system. And that's the last thing that anyone needs to be doing right now. So my advice would be to look ahead for the next six weeks, get off the track, don't worry about pace, start working on things that you don't typically work on, short hill repeats, work on, I call that safe speed and power, um, some shorter, faster intervals in the range of mile to 5K type intensity with equal type of recovery. Keep your volume at about 70, 75% of, of what is quote unquote high for you and just go easy on the long runs. You know, if, if a typical long run for you this time of year, cause you're training for half marathon marathon is between say like 12 and 20 miles, I would dial it back to like, you know, eight to 14 or something in that range. Every, everyone's case is different. Um, but that's what I would do from like an X's and O's standpoint. But I think this is also just a good time since there are no outcome goals to chase is to really embrace a process oriented approach to your training. Like now, you know, everyone's, again, everyone's situation is a little bit different, but since there is no race on the immediate agenda, maybe you have a little more time to train since you're not commuting. Maybe you have less time to train because your kids are home, whatever it may be. Um, but just try and make good use of your time. Try and do the things that during a typical week when you're training hard, when you're at work, uh, when you're dealing with things around the house, you don't have time to, to deal with. So that can be your core work, your prehab, your rehab, um, strength training, doing some drills, uh, all that all that sort of stuff. Now's a good time to do that, to work on becoming a better overall athlete because I do think it's going to be a while before we are back to quote-unquote normal and can have you know a, a nice buildup to a race. So it's like just work on the things right now that you typically neglect or just don't have the time for during a typical training buildup. Well, speaking of things being different than normal i have a question from sjc with all the races being canceled are you worried about losing athletes what advice would you give to a coach who is worried about losing athletes thank you sjc that's a great question and it is something that i am definitely dealing with right now i have a number of athletes whose races have been wiped off the schedule and they don't see the value in being on a training schedule when there is no race on the immediate horizon. And I have to respect everyone's individual situation, but a lot of the conversations that I've had with them are along one of two lines. It's either, hey, there isn't going to be a race for you to train for in the near future, but 
being on a training schedule and following a structured program, even though it's not building up to anything on the immediate horizon, can help lend a sense of normalcy and routine to your life. And I think that is very important for all of us right now. The other side of it for me is folks who have lost their job, gotten laid off, lost clients, as the two of us discussed earlier, and they do want to keep training. They do still want coaching, but because they've got to tighten up their budget, it's one of the first things to go. And in those cases, I want to, my, my, main objective as a coach is to is to help the athlete. And I never want cost to get in the way of me being able to do that. So I take it on a case-by-case basis. And some of them, we've worked out either a reduced rate for them until things brighten up a little bit. Um, some of them, I am going to help in a little bit looser fashion and not charge them for coaching. And some of them are just taking a break because their life is completely in chaos right now. They're working from home when they typically don't. Their kids are home from school. Typically they've got, you know, maybe an hour and a half or so to train every morning. And and right now they're just trying to figure out when they're going to have that time in their day to get out for a run. Um, you know, so they need to take a break for that reason. So, you know, it, it's on one hand, you know, it, it is a reality right now that people are going to either put coaching on hold, step away from it for a while, or adjust the relationship. But I feel pretty confident in the job that I do with my athletes. Most of the athletes that I've coached, I've coached for several years. Uh, and there's a reason that they stick around. It's because we have a great relationship. And, and this whole thing for me is relationship driven. And yeah. I'm not going to let costs get in the way of that. And I know we're going to see this through the other side at some point. So whatever adjustments we've got to make to keep that relationship going and make it, you know, mutually beneficial for both myself and the athlete, like that's, that's what I'm going to do. Even if I take a little bit of a hit, you know, in, in the short term, but the other thing is running's always going to be there. Um, and eventually these races are going to come back and more people are going to want coaching again once things start to stabilize. And I really think this situation that we're in with COVID-19 and because of the restrictions that are pa- placed on our life, like this is going to, I really believe this is going to ignite a third running boom. I think once mm-hmm. we come out of this, people are going to want to run races. People are going to want people who, who, you know, maybe didn't make the time to run pre- prior to this now because they have maybe they have the time and they can get outside at lunch at home and get in a few miles. It's literally the only thing they can do to get out of their house are going to want to stay with it. So I don't think running is going to go anywhere. Um, races are on hold for now, but I think they're going to they're going to come back. But I also think if you are a coach right now and it's a relationship driven approach that you take to working with athletes, you'll find a way to make it work. Um, But the reality of it is some people just aren't going to be able to afford coaching right now. And, and that's, and that's just, that's just like, it's inescapable. Like, like you just, you you can't. Um, And and some coaches are going to, going to lose athletes. I mean, I, you know, aside from my one-on-one athletes, I coach two groups in the city um, on Tuesday and Wednesday nights. And, 
right now we can't meet as a group and hopefully that'll change in the next few months. But, you know, until it, you know, until it does, um, I don't, I don't get paid. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, you know, it's just kind of a reality of the situation that we're in right now. Um, but I think we got to roll with the punches and I think there are going to be, you know, even if you, you do lose athletes for one reason or another, um, there may be others who, who look for coaching, but it can't just be about like, even if it is what you do for a living, like, like myself, like it can't just be, you know, about that. And for me, like, I actually like being in the corner with my back up against the wall because it forces me to figure a way out. Um, and I'm not feeling that just yet, or at least not to a degree, um, where I feel like I'm in, I'm in trouble, but you know, if I do, I'm going to figure, I'm going to figure a way out of it. I don't know what that is right now, but you, you get creative, you get creative with it. But, you know, I, I would say just, you know, focus on those relationships, focus on being of service to your athletes. And if you're doing a good job with those things, I truly believe it will work out for you on other levels as well. Yeah. Stress breeds creativity. Constraint breeds creativity as well. You were a philosophy major? I sure was. Hey, John, we're going to take a quick break because I want to thank UCAN for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. And UCAN, they're a longtime partner of the Morning Shakeout. Their product, Super Starch product, delivers steady, long-lasting energy for runners with no spikes and no crash. There were over 50 U.S. Olympic marathon trials qualifiers using UCAN, a lot of top running coaches, including myself, Greg McMillan, and others, and thousands of age group athletes. They rely on UCAN for smarter energy to finish stronger. I've been using UCAN's performance energy drink before my long runs, big workouts, and races for the past four years, and it is a crucial part of my nutrition plan, provides steady energy that's easy on my gut, and I really would not have had the success that I've had my last three marathons without UCAN as a part of it. Learn more about UCAN's one-of-a-kind energy at generationucan.com slash shakeout, and you can save 25% on your first order with the code SHAKEOUT25. That's SHAKEOUT25. And if you're already a UCAN fan, you can save 15% on subsequent orders with the code SHAKEOUT. Just SHAKEOUT, no number at the end of it. My thanks to Generation UCAN for its support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Let's talk about the Olympics. This question is from Diego B. What should happen with Olympic marathon trials qualifiers? Should USATF rehold the trials if and when the Olympics are delayed a year? Interested in your thoughts. Thanks, Diego. That is an interesting question to Noodle on. As of this conversation, the Olympics are planning to go on as planned in late July into August in Tokyo, Japan. Yesterday, or was it this morning? I think it was yesterday. We're recording this on Sunday. USA Track and Field wrote a letter to the IOC asking them to strongly consider postponing the Olympic Games. USA Swimming did the same the day prior. There are other federations around the world who are lobbying for the Olympics to be delayed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Thomas Bach, who is the head of the IOC, says, nope, we're going to go on as planned. I don't know if that will hold. But if the Olympics do get 
postponed by a year or two years or whatever it may be. I do not believe that the U.S. Olympic trials marathon should be reheld. And I really don't think it would be reheld. I think the three men who made the team, Galen Rupp, Jake Riley, Abdi Abdurrahman, and the three women, Alephine Tuliamuk, Molly Seidel, and Sally Kipiego, they will be on the U.S. Olympic marathon team, whether it happens in Tokyo this summer, whether it happens in Tokyo next spring or fall, whether it happens in Tokyo in 2022. I do not think they're going to rehold the U.S. Olympic marathon trial. So I don't think any of the folks who made the team have anything to worry about. They are on the next U.S. Olympic marathon team for these 2020 games, whether they happen in 2020 or not. Follow-up question, this time for 2024. This is from Anne-Marie. What do you think the 2024 OTQ time should be, and what do you think they will be? Great question. I have some thoughts. So this year's Olympic trials in Atlanta were huge. Uh, There were... 700 and something total qualifiers. I think 511 women and 200 and some odd men who qualified. So obviously there's a a bit of a disparity there. Far more women qualified than men, which I think is great. Uh, It's been good for the sport. The excitement around the marathon in general and the top athletes is higher than it's ever been. But the excitement further back in the field amongst the competitive amateurs who the Olympic trials are their Olympics was off the charts. Um, And I think even though the Olympic standards have been tightened up quite a bit, they are now 229.30 for women, 211.30 for men, and or top five at a marathon major, top 10, or sorry, top 10 at a marathon major, top five at an IAAF or sorry, World Athletics gold label race. I mean, if those were the Olympic trial standards, just by time or qualification, they'd be obviously a lot smaller than they were in Atlanta this year. And I think that would be a big step back for the sport in this country. That said, I do think um, there needs to be some adjusting uh, on both the men's and women's sides because I do not think the 219 that we used on the men's side is equivalent to sub 245 on the women's side. So I would say... Either keep the women's standard at 245 like it was and adjust the men's standard back to, say, 222 or so and be committed to having two big fields at the trials and making some adjustments that cause problems this year in terms of who gets bottles, where you start on the start line, et cetera, et cetera. Or you adjust the standards so that they are a little more attainable and you say – these are the standards. Maybe it's 243 for women and 221 for men or something like that. And we are going to take the top 300 men and 300 women have 600 people in the trials. Or maybe it's top 500 men, top 500 women. I don't know. Um, but I think making it attainable so that the fields are bigger and there is just more overall excitement around the event would be in USA track and field's best interest and in the sport's best interest. That being said, the point of the Olympic trials is to choose the team. So this year, the 
race was made a gold label race. So regardless of what times the finisher top finishers ran, uh, they were they were going to be on the Olympic team. They had they were, you know, they they had the Olympic standard, um, regardless of whether they ran the time or not. I mean, interestingly enough, they all ran the time that they needed to run in Atlanta. So it would have been a moot point as it was. But I think if you know, who knows what's going to change in the next four years because the Olympic qualification standards changed. You know, just a few months before this year's trials. Um, but if nothing else changes, um, that would be, you know, what I think they should be. I think they should either loosen the men's standard a little bit, um, so that we can have more men's qualifiers and keep the women's the same or tighten the women's up a little bit, loosen the men's a little bit, and then cap it on each side. Say, we're going to take the top, you know, three to 500 men, top three to 500 women, have it be equal. So I think that's important. Um, and, and almost have it be like, Hey, these are the top 300 male marathoners in the United States. These are the top 300 female marathoners in the United States. What I think will actually happen is a lot harder to answer because things change quite a bit, uh, in terms of the qualification standards that's happened, that happened in 2016, right before the trial that happened again, here in, in 2020, who knows what's going to happen in 2024, especially with the chance that the Olympics themselves may be postponed a little bit. Um, I think USA Track and Field realized how exciting of an event ha- took place in Atlanta this year, and they are going to want to replicate that wherever the trials are held in 2024. So I think they, I mean, they can make the qualifying standards whatever they want. They don't have to be, they can't be any harder than the Olympic standards, but they can be whatever whatever they want them to be, essentially. Um, but I think they'll they'll keep them, you know, challenging enough that it is a big deal for someone to qualify, but also attainable enough that we'll have two very healthy fields on both sides so that wherever the trials are held in 2024, it can be another exciting event. I think you've touched on this a little bit already, but I have a question from Gary. What are your three to five biggest takeaways from the Atlanta Olympic trials earlier this month? So the excitement around the event was just off the charts. I was there. I've been to the last four Olympic marathon trials. This one was on a different level than any of the previous ones, even New York, the men's trials in New York in 2007, uh, which was pretty amazing. The weekend of New York city marathon, this just trumped that by orders of magnitude. So the excitement for me was a, a big one. Centennial park where the race started and finished was right across the street from the host hotel. All the athletes were in the same hotel the excitement around that area from Thursday through Sunday was just insane. They could probably spread that out a little bit because it was a little bit overwhelming for the athletes, but the excitement around the event was huge. So that was that was takeaway number one. Um, takeaway number two is they, meaning USA Track and Field, should continue to hold these races on honest courses. And Atlanta was a very honest course. Some would say it was a very challenging course. But I think that's important in a situation like this because, again, the point of the Olympic trials is to choose the Olympic team. And the Olympics is a race for place. It's not a race 
for time. So I think in a situation like that, having a course that forces people to race, that challenges them in different ways, that is not about who is the fastest, but is about who is the best racers, uh, is is hugely important. And a lot of the other trials have been that way too. LA was, you know, a a faster course, but it was like a really hot day. There's some people who complain that the Atlanta course was too challenging and, you know, really, um, put some athletes at a disadvantage, but, but no, it's like, it's, this is racing. Like, you know, the Olympics, what these athletes are trying to qualify for is about racing. And I think the course should allow for that. It shouldn't just be who can go out and, hang on to the fastest pace for, you know, two hours and eight minutes or two hours and 20 minutes. It should be about who can respond to moves, who can deal with the unique challenges that the course throws at you, the weather that day, you know, et cetera. So I liked that it was a very challenging course, despite some of the grumbles that were heard on the ground and and, and elsewhere. But I think it led to a very exciting event. And the third is more a reinforcement than a takeaway, but anything can happen in the marathon. And I don't think anyone had picked Molly Seidel to make the Olympic team, but she did. And I think that's one of the cool things about an event like this in a race's race. Uh, surprises can happen, and that's good for the sport. Same thing with Jake Riley. I mean, he had run two ten thirty coming in. He was a solid runner, but he was not a favorite. Uh, by any means, neither was Abdi Abdurrahman, who finished finished third, and they both made the team. So anything can happen in a marathon. I think that's part of what makes it exciting, and I obviously knew that before, but it was really reinforced at the Olympic trials because a lot of pundits beforehand were like, no, this is who is going to make the team. And it's like, well, if we knew that ahead of time, it wouldn't you know, it wouldn't be fun to even run the race and it'd just be boring to watch. But I think that's kind of, you know, what makes the marathon exciting and why I like a situation like the Olympic trials, because anything can happen. And I think we're sending two great teams to the Olympics whenever they may happen. And I think the event itself was super exciting for fans of the sport and hopefully help bring some new fans into the sport. I'm wondering if you can touch on you you mentioned uh, having an honest course. Can you define a dishonest course? <laughs> that is a very philosophical question. Um, Probably a better way for me to ask it is, compare the outcome of a dishonest course versus an honest course. I mean, would the best racer win on in both scenarios? Not necessarily. So on an honest course, the fastest doesn't necessarily win. And that's what we saw in Atlanta on, I won't call it a dishonest course, but on a fast, flat course, I mean, things are going to separate a lot quicker than they do on a course that has a lot of hills, a lot of turns, a lot of things for the athletes to deal with. And racing well is a matter of dealing with what's going on around you and problem solving and responding to moves and responding to what the course throws at you. Whereas, you know, not that there are going to be pacers at the Olympic trials, but if it's a flat, fast course, the fastest people in the field know that if they can go out at a pretty quick tempo, 
then they're going to get rid of 95% of people right away. And it, I just don't think it's going to be as an excite, as, as exciting of a race, you know, in that scenario. And I don't think that the Olympic trial should be set up for athletes to get their personal best necessarily. They may. And if they do, that's great. But I think the point of the Olympic trials, aside from choosing the three people who make the team is to showcase who the best racers are. And I think in order to do that, you've got to throw a few twists into the mix that make the race interesting, that put the athletes on their toes and force them to make some decisions and don't put them in a situation where they're just locking into 450 miles and seeing who can hold on the longest. Yeah. It's not so much about uh, what the top speed is, is it's about deciding when to use that top speed. Yeah, there are racers and there are pacers, and I think a championship-style race like the trials should not be a pacers affair. It shouldn't be a time trial. It should be a race from the get-go. Maybe it starts slow. There are some moves thrown in, finishes fast, um, like we saw in the women's race in Atlanta. Maybe it's quicker from the get-go, like we saw in the men's race from Atlanta, some of the top men felt that it was too fast. And then by the time the race really blew open, they just weren't in it. And, and that's what it should be about, in my opinion. All right, before we get to the next question, we're going to take one more quick break so that I can let you know that this episode is also brought to you by the Atlanta Track Club and the AJC Peachtree Road Race. Hey, I know it's only March, but you need to make your 4th of July plans right now because both member and lottery registration for the AJC Peachtree Road Race is open right now and it closes on March 31st. And for those of you listening to this, as of right now, the Peachtree Road Race is still on. I don't know what that situation will look like couple weeks or a few months from now. But as of right now, the Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta, Georgia on July 4th is still on. And the Peachtree Road Race is one of America's iconic road races. And as the largest road race in the country and the biggest 10K in the world, you have to experience it for yourself. This year, July 4th falls on a Saturday, so it's the perfect opportunity to grab friends and family and make a weekend trip out of it. Lottery registration is open now until March 31st, and all registrants will be informed on April 2nd via email whether or not they were selected. You can enter as an individual or part of a team. The lottery is free to enter, and you are only charged if you get into the race. Learn more and register today at ajc.com slash peachtree. That's ajc.com slash peachtree. My thanks to the Atlanta Track Club and the AJC Peachtree Road Race for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Question from Susan B. Do you think the use of banned PEDs is an issue amongst competitive age groupers, including those that mainly run local races and never get drug tested? If so, how prevalent do you think it is? That's a loaded question. The short answer is... Yes, I do think it's an issue, but I do not think it is that prevalent. And unfortunately, PED use is a problem from elites all the way back into the age groups, but I don't think it's as problematic at the age group level as it is near the front of the pack. And a lot of this is just anecdotal things that I've heard, rumor mill and whatnot. 
reality is most races, especially smaller ones, aren't going to test back in the age group. So, you know, we'll never know. Um, but there are people, unfortunately, in our world who are going to take advantage of every opportunity that they can, even if it's just to put them at the top of the podium of their local 10K. So I do think it is an issue, but I don't think it's as widespread as it is near the top of the sport. Taking it back to talking about coaching a little bit, this question is from John Jay. I've been wanting to learn more about coaching and exercise physiology. I'm just an age grouper who has an uncomfortable love for running right now and would love to coach in the future. Other than your podcast, what resources are gold mines for me to learn workouts and exercise physiology? I really want to know the why behind everything. That's a great question. It is important to know the why behind everything that you're doing. If you can't tell an athlete why they're doing a certain workout or why the season is structured the way that it is, then you shouldn't be coaching, in my opinion. That said, I am not an exercise physiologist. I've never claimed to be. If you've read any of my works, they are not super sciency in terms of the language that I use, but it's important to have an understanding of exercise physiology, at least on a basic level, how the body works, how it responds to certain types of stress, how long it takes for an athlete to absorb a certain type of workout and so on and so forth. So for me, I have always had an insatiable appetite for learning and for training theory and a lot of most of what I know is self-taught. And when I was in high school, back in the late 1990s, I would go into the library and pull out all the books that I could find on training and absorb as much of it as possible. And that has not stopped for the past 20 plus years. Um, so I would try and read whatever you can get your hands on. Some great resources that I would start with are Tim Noakes, The Lore of Running. I call it the Bible. It feels like a Bible. It's super thick. Um, I, let's see, what edition is it on right now? The one that I have on my bookshelf is the fourth edition, um, Lore of Running. Tim Noakes is an exercise physiologist in South Africa, and he uncovers every aspect of, of training theory from the mile to ultra marathons in there. And I think that is just a good resource to have. Um, I also have a book, which is very hard to find, um, but you may be able to online. It's called Road to the Top and it is by Joe Vigil. Joe Vigil is one of the top American distance coaches ever. He was at Adams State in Alamosa, Colorado for a long time. They won crap ton of NCAA championships, but he has coached a number of national champions. He coached Dina Castor to her Olympic medal. He is an exercise physiologist. He's super smart, but he puts it in ways that are very relatable to the average person, such as myself. Um, Running with the Legends is a great book by Michael Sandrock. It's much more narrative than it is exercise physiology. It profiles a lot of top athletes, um, many all of whom are retired at this point, uh, but talks a bit about their training, gives some insight into that. That's not super exercise physiology heavy, um, but 
you can definitely connect some dots by reading through a lot of those profiles. Uh, Steve Magnus, who coaches at the University of Houston, works with a number of top professional athletes. His first book is called The Science of Running. Steve studied exercise physiology in undergrad and grad school. And as the title of the book suggests, it is all about the science of running and the why behind a lot of these workouts. So for me, like a lot of these are my, my textbooks and they help me understand why we're doing what we're doing. But for me, like coaching is an art and a science. And I think the art of coaching is being able to apply the science in such a way that you can achieve a desired result. So it's important to know why you're doing what you're doing, but don't neglect the human side of it, the relationship side of it, being able to connect with your athletes, getting them to buy into your program, to trust you, to take them where they want to go. Because without that, I don't care how much you know, um, if you can't apply it, if you can't relate to another human being, if you can't understand their motivations and where they're coming from, uh, it, I mean, it, it's like, it, it doesn't matter. You gotta, you gotta have both of those things. So I would say, make sure you know why you're doing what you're doing. Study the exercise physiology. Those are some great resources that I mentioned. There are many, many others that I'm not thinking of off the top of my head, but also, you know, learn how to relate with people, read some psychology books. Um, philosophy is great. Read the biographies of, of great runners and coaches. Go listen to an earlier episode of my podcast with coach Frank Gagliano. Listen to Terrence Mahan, listen to Dina Evans, um, listen to Lauren Fleshman. I mean, these are some other excellent coaches that I've been able to learn from by sitting across from them and asking them questions. And, you know, I do a lot of that work for you. So you can just go back and listen to those conversations um, and ask questions of, of other coaches that you admire and that you look up to because more often than not, they're going to be willing to help you. Somewhat coaching related of a question. This one's from Gary. How did you meet your wife and do you coach her? That one's out of left field. Um, great question, though. I met my wife in San Diego in 2011, so a little over nine years ago now. And she was part of a women's team that I was about to coach. And I use those words very carefully because I did not coach my wife before we started dating. But when I was being interviewed for this position, she was one of the six or seven women who came out to the coffee shop to throw questions at me. And we ended up connecting about a week after that over our moms. We both lost our moms pretty early on in our adulthood. Uh, my mom passed away from a brain aneurysm unexpectedly. Christine lost her mom to cancer. And that's how we started talking. It actually had nothing to do with running. I mean, it was that running team and her being a part of it and coming out to interview me for the position that connected us. But it wasn't running necessarily that that brought us or coaching I should say you know that that brought us together so just to put it out there I um <laughs> started dating my wife uh before I started coaching that team and I actually didn't coach her for quite a while then a few years ago I coached her for the Boston Marathon and I helped her with the running and cycling part of her triathlon season for the next 
couple of years. And last year she started working with a triathlon coach to go after her goals in 70.3. And this year, assuming it happens, Ironman. And I was very happy for that to happen. Um, my wife fired me from coaching her <laughs> on my request because I had a hard time drawing the line between being a good husband and being a good coach. It was hard for me, not so much for her, but it was hard for me to kind of be as good of a coach as, as I felt like I could be while still being her husband. Because as your husband, you want to protect your wife and you want to look out for her best interests. And I had a hard time not taking things personally. Like if she had a tough workout, uh, and she would never blame me. I mean, but if she had a tough workout, I would take it personally because I gave her the workout, right? Or if I'm out with her on a run or there for one of her workouts and it's not going well, it's a lot different for me than if it were one of my other athletes who I have a relationship with, but it's a different type of relationship <laughs> and I can be a lot less emotional about it with them than I can be for my wife. So this year, well, starting last year and into this year, uh, she started working with a triathlon coach who I've known for a long time. She's also known for a long time. And honestly, it's been a great situation for everyone involved. <laughs> Did I answer that full question? Was there more to it? I think you did. Okay. That was a touching story. That was the Cliff's Notes version of it. <laughs> was it a dramatic firing? No, it was very amicable. Uh, and it was a relief on my part because, again, I would take things very personally. Uh, if she didn't perform up to her expectations, I would just blame myself. And again, she'd never blame me for, for any of it. But when mm -hmm. you feel like you're, you're failing your wife in her uh, athletic pursuits, it's not a very great feeling. So to be able to just remove that and be a supporting, like I had a hard time being a supportive husband while I was still trying to be her coach. And it's a lot easier yeah. for me to be a supportive husband when I'm not her coach. Yeah, definitely. And I know plenty of other athletes who are coached by their spouse and mm -hmm. it's fine. But for me, it just didn't work. Is there something there where, is that a common thing for a coach to, I don't know, to, to coach their spouse or end up marrying an, another athlete? It's not as uncommon as you would think. Um, there are plenty of examples out there on the professional side of things, but even down into the age group ranks mm -hmm. where an athlete ended up marrying his or her coach and people feel differently. Uh, people have differing opinions on those types of situations um, or however it, you know, however it came to be, but you know, it works, you know, the, yeah. the coach athlete relationship works, the husband wife relationship works or, or whatever the spousal relationship works. Uh, and you know, and that, and that's a, it, that's a great thing. Um, but I wouldn't say it's common, but it's not as uncommon as people would think. Yeah. This is a question from Diego B. Can you provide some color commentary on your shoe rotation? I think you've touched on this in previous episodes, but I can't remember which one. Things like how many shoes you rotate through and what you use for each workout type. Tempo, interval, easy, long, etc. Spark notes of why it's important to rotate. Considerations for different types of runners, etc. Thanks, Diego. Great question. 
I think it's important to have a quiver of shoes, much like if you're a golfer, you have a lot of different clubs in your bag. So depending on the type of shot you're going to take at a golf course, you would pull out a certain type of club. I feel the same way about shoes. If you're going to go for an easy run, I think you're going to want to have a well-cushioned trainer that's going to provide some good protection and you can just kind of go cruise and get your miles in. Whereas if you're going to the track, I like to have a, a snappier, faster, flat that you can put on your feet and feels fast when you put it on your feet uh, is going to engage more of your feet muscles, lower leg muscles, is going to help you to find better mechanics and posture on the track. Um, if you're going to the trails, depending on the type of terrain that you're on, having a trail-specific shoe that is going to provide the appropriate protection underfoot is going to give you some lateral stability for some of those side-to-side movements that you encounter on the trails. And depending if it's rocky terrain or more buffed out terrain, like even that type of trail shoe might look a bit different. I think now for racing longer distances, like half marathons and marathons, having a racing flat that is providing a bit more protection without sacrificing weight uh, and is allowing you to run to your potential and not be falling apart toward the end of a marathon. Um, these days is pretty essential equipment if you're looking at the feet of anyone uh, that's out, you know, that's out there. So I think, you know, long story short, you want different shoes for different types of runs and different types of workouts. So for me, I'm fortunate in that I have a lot of shoes because of either sponsor relationships with this show the local running shop that I coach for and I'm able to get a discount on shoes. Uh, And I've just always been a shoe nerd. I used to do the reviews at Competitor Magazine with Brian Metzler when I was there um, from 2010 to 2016. And I've I've always just been, you know, fascinated with with running shoes. So I've never had a shortage of them. Um, But I would say like, I probably have an excessive amount. I think most people should probably have, you know, between two and four pairs of shoes. Um, And aside from having, you know, different shoes for different types of workouts, um, you also have to allow your shoes to recover between runs, especially if you're running, you know, four, five, six, seven or more times per week. Because when you're running in a shoe, you are compressing that midsole with every step. And depending on how long you're running, your biomechanics, you know, your weight, like that midsole is going to take a, a beating to, to varying degrees. And when you finish a run, you know, much like you need to recover, your shoes actually need to recover too. That midsole, even more modern materials need time to bounce back between runs. So if you can rotate shoes, you can actually help them last a bit longer because you're allowing them to, to bounce back between runs. I mean, oftentimes we know we need to change a shoe because it starts feeling flat and shoes will start feeling flatter quicker if you're running in the same shoe every day because it hasn't had a chance to recover. A lot of people just look at the outside and they see that it's smoothed over and bald. And I mean, that is an obvious sign of, of wear, but people don't really pay too much attention to what's going on in that, in that midsole area between your foot and the ground. So for me, just to share a few of, of my current choices and 
I will say previous episodes of the podcast have been sponsored by New Balance. So I have quite a few New Balance in my rotation, but I was buying New Balance shoes before they were sponsoring the podcast. So I'll mention a few of those here, um, but I can vouch for them because I would go out and, and pay money for them even if I if I weren't given to them. All the other ones that I mentioned, I, I paid for myself. But I have a pair of Hoka Clifton's six, and I've had... I think every version of those uh, since they came out. And I've actually raced a couple marathons in that shoe back in like 2015 or so. But that's kind of my every, one of my everyday mileage shoes. I'll put on the Hoka Clifton. Uh, it's neutral shoe. It's got good cushion, but it's lightweight. And if I'm just going out to run for 30 to 60 minutes, oftentimes that's what I have on my feet. Uh, or if I'm doing a longer run where I'm not trying to hit specific types of paces, I'm just going out for distance on the roads or a mellow trail. That's what I'll wear. Um, the partner to that that I'll rotate it with is the New Balance 1080. So that is their high cushioned neutral shoe, pretty lightweight, has fresh foam X in it. I've run in versions of that shoe for the past probably eight years or so. And this is by far my favorite version. And I'll kind of flip that back and forth with the Clifton for distance days or long runs where I'm not doing anything specific. Um, For the trails, I like Nike trail shoes. I've got a few of them in my rotation. I have a trail Pegasus that I'll wear on the trails around here, which aren't super technical. uh, And I oftentimes have to run some roads to get there. And that's a good kind of roads to trail type of shoe. Um, I'll also wear the Kyger and the Wild Horse. The current versions are the six. I just got both of those, um, but I've run in the five, the four, uh, three, etc. And I like the Kyger when I'm going a little bit faster and I want something that's snappier on my feet, but the trails aren't that technical. And I wear the Wild Horse when I want a little more cushion or I'm on a trail that has some rocks and roots to it and I just want some more protection underneath my feet. Um, when I go to the track, I've been wearing the New Balance 1500, the current version, which I think is the V6, but I had the V5 prior to that. And I like that shoe because it's lightweight and offers a little bit of protection, but it's not super flimsy. And I actually had a prior version of that shoe that last summer I ran a whole track meet in that shoe. Um, I did every event from the 100 meters to the 5K. And I wore that shoe for, you know, for all of it. Um, I've got a pair of New Balance Fuel Cell TCs, which is a carbon plated training shoe that accompanies their Fuel Cell Racer, which has not been released yet. And I actually wore that yesterday for a fartlek session, but I typically wear that for, you know, tempo runs and long runs where I have some work built into it. And I like it because it offers me some protection underneath my feet, um, helps to fend off fatigue in the later miles when my mechanics might start to fail a little bit. Um, but it just feels fast and I, and I like it. And it's just, um, a fun shoe to do some quicker, steadier miles in. Um, I have raced my last couple marathons in some version of the Nike 4% Flyknit, but more recently I have been testing out the New Balance Fuel Cell TC Racer, which is their carbon-plated 
marathon racing flat. I've done a couple tempo runs in that. The Brooks Hyperion Elite, which is their version of a carbon-plated um, fast marathon racer. And the accompanying Hyperion Tempo, which is probably my favorite shoe right now. Um, it's lightweight. It's got this new, I think they're calling it DNA foam. Uh, it's got, I think it's got a, I want to say like a, a plastic plate of some sort. It's pretty flexible. Like you can actually wear it on the track and kind of get up on your toes. Um, but it's just like really light. It's low to the ground, provides good cushion. It just, it's really snappy. It's kind of the word I, I keep coming back to. Um, and I really, really like that about it. Um, I've also got a pair of Under Armour Hover Sonics. It might be the Sonic 2s that I really, really like. They've got this knit upper. Um, Under Armour shoes weren't that great, quite honestly, for a long time. Uh, but starting with that shoe, they've been putting out some better product. And I've been using that on a lot of distance runs as well, mixing it in on some of those days when I'm not using the Hoka Clifton or the New Balance 1080. And then the last shoe I've got in my rotation is another trail shoe. I've got a pair of Solomon Sense Ride 2s, I believe. And they've got the kind of quick lace system built into it. What I like about that shoe is it actually feels like a road shoe, but it's got a little bit more protection to it. So it's pretty nimble for the trail. So I will kind of sub that out with the Kyger 6 from time to time. Well, that's a lot of information there and quite the rotation. Can we expect... It was a little, little bit of, a, was a, little bit of a, a review of sorts. But I mean, the, the bottom line is like, you know, if you can, if your budget allows to have at least two pairs of shoes in your rotation. Have one shoe that you wear out just for your distance runs and then have something that's a little bit lighter, a little bit snappier for your faster workouts. If you can expand beyond two pairs of shoes, maybe you've got something in there that's just for racing, kind of a mid-weight shoe for workouts and then your everyday trainer. Maybe there's a trail shoe mixed in there, but use the golf club analogy just as you'd have different clubs for different types of shots you want different types of shoes for different types of runs and workouts there you go folks the cliff notes version <laughs> can we expect a shoe review podcast a bit of a spin-off coming anytime soon probably not i actually hated reviewing <laughs> shoes i think i was pretty good at it but this is going to sound really, really pretentious, but it's hard to run in a lot of different shoes. Um, when you're reviewing shoes for a magazine or, or for a publication, oftentimes you don't get a ton of time to run in the shoes and mm. you can't run that many miles in them. So you're given an assessment based on maybe 50 miles run in a shoe. So you have no idea how it's performing at 100 or 200 or 300 miles. And if you're trying to cram a bunch of different shoes into a review, you can only run so many miles per week, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, if you're if you're running, you know, like I typically run like 50 miles in a week plus or minus, you know, 5 miles. And that means I can run in like maybe one different shoe every day and you know, I'll, if I do that for a month, like I've run every shoe like once, and that's just not enough time, I think, to, to provide a truly, you know, accurate review. So 
I don't think I'm going to do one for the podcast. It would kind of deviate from my typical uh, interview format. I, I will take shoe questions for asking me anything. I take them, you know, via email and on social media and stuff like that. Just, just kind of given my thoughts. Um, but for me, reviewing shoes isn't as fun as it sounds. It's great. To, to get shoes that you don't have to, you know, mm. to pay for, but you also end up running in some shoes that you just don't really like. Yeah. Um, and if you're doing your job well, you should run in them a few more times than you would like to, so that you can give it an accurate assessment. And that was probably one of my least favorite parts of the job at competitor, if I'm being honest. Mm. Okay, so you mentioned that being one of your least favorite things, mm-hmm. competitor. Let's talk about some of your most favorite things there. Well, the reason I launched this podcast, not to ask me anything episode, but my traditional interview style format was interviewing people, interviewing coaches and athletes and other people in the industry for articles that I was working on. And oftentimes a lot of those conversations were short. They were 15 to maybe 30 minutes if I were doing a profile on someone And I always enjoyed them, but I wished I had more time. So that's what my podcast is. My podcast Mm -hmm. is going back and doing what I love to do the most, which was talk to people in a format that is long form and extended. I don't have to be super pointed with my questions, I can just have a conversation with someone and listen to what they have to say and follow up appropriately. Whereas most of the articles I was writing for a competitor were pretty pointed. They were either a a profile leading into an event or I was writing a training article and I was asking them about X, Y, and Z. And I can still ask those types of questions in a podcast format, but it's a bit more unscripted completely unscripted versus a lot of these interviews I would do at competitor. I would go in with my list of five to 10 questions that I needed answered for whatever article that I was working on. And that would be the end of it. But that was probably my favorite part of working at competitor was being able to establish and groom a lot of those relationships. And I've taken a lot of them into the podcast and have been able to have the conversations that I wish I could have had with some of these people um, several years ago. And for me, it was the whole thing, like the six years that I was I was there, especially those types of conversations, um, it was really continuing education for coaching. And that's kind of how I look at a lot of the podcast episodes that I do now. I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where I can call these people up and ask them questions that I would like the answers to and they give them to me and I'm able to learn from them. And for me, that's been the best education that I could have ever asked for as a coach, being able to call up someone like Ben Rosario and ask him how he structures a marathon program or how he thinks about recovery afterward or asking Lee Troop what his you know, three go-to workouts are for his athletes before a major marathon or sitting down with Frank Gagliano and asking him how he got into coaching and how he thinks about his relationships with his athletes. Um, I love having those types of conversations because I personally learn a lot from them. Mm -hmm. And I hope that anyone who reads my articles or listens to my podcasts takes just as much away from them as I do. So for me, 
like these conversations all come from a place of curiosity because I'm genuinely interested in learning something from whoever it is that, you know, I'm sitting across from. Second to that would be event coverage. I was fortunate in my time at competitor that I got to go to a lot of events to cover them, Olympic trials, national championships, major marathons, um, even some local races. And it's just fun to be, you know, on the ground and to watch a race unfold and write about it and give your perspective on it. And, you know, again, further some of those relationships in the pre and post race interviews that you would do. And, and oftentimes we would start coverage for an event in the weeks and months prior, and then it would go through the event and then we'd have some follow-up. So I love that whole process, um, mm-hmm. creating a content plan from pre-race to race day to post-race and and seeing all of that come together. And I don't do any of that now, really. I don't really cover races for the morning shakeout. I give my commentary on them, which is something I always wished I could do at Competitor, but it never really fit with our content flow. To me, it feels like you're you're kind of decoding somebody's storyline and these races are part of these storylines. Whereas it sounds like in competitor, it's the opposite where like you're, you're kind of sorting through the storyline to kind of get to these five or 10 questions that you're, you have to put in your article. Yeah. Well, it's a very clunky way for me to summarize that. No, but I, I know (laughs) where you're trying to go with it and that's what I hope to achieve with the podcast. I want to, yeah, go below the surface with a lot of these people. For me, back to what we were saying at the top of the show, being able to sit across from someone in a room and ask them a question or follow up on one of their answers and see them actually thinking through it, maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time in a while, that is the coolest feeling in the entire world. And I think it comes across in the audio as well, especially when you hear people pausing to think about what they're going to say. But you can you can see them trying to figure something out yeah. in their own head um, as they're as they're sitting across from you. And that's not something that you can do in a profile. That's not something that comes across in ten ways to recover better after your next race, those sorts of things. Um, so for me, like I love those kind of conversations. I learn a lot from them. Uh, it's, it's really a, a blessing to be in a, in a situation where I can provide that platform for my guests. Um, and, and that's how I sort of judge the job that I'm doing. I think I'm doing a good job if I can get my guest to think about the question I've asked them in a way that they haven't in another interview or they haven't even on their own. So I'm, I'm a facilitator in a lot of ways. Two-part question for you, follow-up to this. I know that you, you were interviewing people for years before you decided to start releasing these as a podcast. Back in the, the tape recorder days, <laughs> did it feel different? Did things almost feel... Was there less pressure back then because you knew you're not going to be releasing these recordings to people? Oh, heck yeah. Follow-up question. Would you release some of those old recordings to people? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The short answers to your two questions are yes and no. Yeah. So 
I am very aware when I'm having a conversation with someone now for the podcast that it is going to be released to a wider audience. Yeah. So I sometimes to my detriment am a little more aware of how I'm asking a question or the words that I'm using mm-hmm. or I'm trying very hard not to say um or you know and I still do. Um <laughs> Whereas in the past, when I was interviewing someone for an article, even if I was with them reporting on site, I knew that no one was going to listen to it but me. So I could be a little looser in terms of how I would ask those questions. I wouldn't be as afraid to mess up in my asking of that question. I would allow myself to be a little more awkward, I think, in some of those interactions. I don't know if, if that makes sense, but I, I mean, bottom line, I knew that no one was going to listen to those tapes except me. So I could edit my, even if I transcribed a Q&A, for example, I could edit my long rambling question into something a lot more concise. Yeah. And if my guest had a long rambling answer that was too much for print because we would often Mm -hmm. have uh, word counts that we needed to adhere to. I could chop it. Whereas in the podcast, I just let it go. Um, And I do still feel like I have a tendency to ramble from time to time. I have my little ticks, but I listen back I listen back. I don't share these things. I listen back to some of my old files um, and compare them to some of the podcasts I have now. And even even the podcasts, I go back and I listen to those early ones with Scott Fobble and Des Linden and Shalane Flanagan and um, Meb Kofleski. Those were like you know some of the first ten that I did, and I listen to the last few that I did and see if I've improved in some of those areas as an interviewer and to answer your second question, no, I will not release any of those <laughs> those old files. I have all of them in case I ever yeah. need to reference them for something, but they're painful, man, to listen to. I think it's hard to listen to yourself even if you have become better and more adept at something, uh, but I will not let... Uh, and I don't even let my wife listen to those because I'm just I'm embarrassed. I feel like I, I sound really awkward and unprofessional, and I I don't know what I'm I'm doing. Yeah. So, but I will listen back to them just to to learn and see how far I've come. But I I feel no need to share those with other people. I think we're both in agreement on our favorite episode of this podcast, which is that Frank Gagliana episode. And my favorite thing about that, he was not at all paying attention to other people listening. He was c- completely focused on you. I think there were points in that interview when I think you guys both put down the mics and he was showing you pictures and books that he had on his bookshelf. He was showing me his workout schedules that he writes on yellow legal pads and pencil. That's crazy. I mean, it it's weird to listen to a podcast and then feel like I'm eavesdropping at the same time. Yeah, well, I think if I'm doing my job well, that's what it should feel like. It should feel like you are as a listener, just in the room, flying the wall, eavesdropping on the conversation that I'm having with whomever. And for me, what I've noticed in a lot of the conversations I've had for the podcast, even when I'm in the room with someone, is it can sometimes take me 10 to 15 minutes to 
get the guest comfortable and <laughs> you're pointing to yourself on, on the other side of the screen, even though we are not in the in the room together. Um, and then they start to open up, yeah. and they start to feel more comfortable with me. And that's what I really want to create and cultivate is a comfortable environment for the guest. And I honestly don't try to probe many of my guests. Um, there are things that I'm interested in and, and questions that I want answers to, but I, I try not to be probing or feel like, you know, come across in such a way that it, it feels like I'm, I'm digging for something that is, is going to blow people's minds. I'm just having mm-hmm. a curious conversation. Like I'm genuinely interested in the answers to these questions. And I tell all my guests too, if there's something you'd rather not talk about or something you want to cut out afterward, I'm more than happy to do that because this is you who's talking to my to mm-hmm. my listeners and and honestly I've never had a I've never had a guest say like hey I'd rather not talk about that or I'd I'd rather you know please cut that out after the the fact like every episode that I've put out is the full you know conversation that we've had from start to finish if there are any edits it's for flubs and you know restarts on a on an answer or something like that um, but I've never had a content cut on any of the 103 episodes that I've had for the podcast. And I'm really proud of that because I think that means I've done my job well in creating a comfortable environment for the guests to talk about any number of topics, some of which may put them in a vulnerable position, but they're comfortable enough to talk about whatever it is. Yeah. Shows you that you had no agenda going into it. You were just there to connect. And you did I don't write down questions. I know where I want to dive in with a guest. It's important to know where you're going to start the conversation. But my main job is to listen to them yeah. once the conversation gets started. I've got to listen to them. And if I'm listening to them, I'm going to pick out something interesting in their response and I'm going to follow up on it. Whereas mm-hmm. if I've got my list of 10 questions, I don't need to listen to what they're saying to me because then I'm just going on to my next question. And you know there are some people who 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 do that and they feel more comfortable doing that and that's fine but that's that's not what i'm trying to achieve with the podcast i don't think of them as interviews i use that word from time to time but i don't think what i do is is an interview i really try to have a conversation with people mm-hmm. and i i generally I mean, I know some of the things that we're going to talk about, especially if they've, you know, Alephine Tuliamook, for example, she just won the Olympic trials. Of course, we're going to talk about the Olympic yeah. trials. Like, I know that. Um, it might come up in, in that conversation, but it may go to some other places that I didn't expect it to go and that she didn't expect it to go. And I think if I can have an open mind when I go into a conversation, it's going to, well, I know if I have an open mind going into a conversation, it's going to take us to some interesting places. Well, I, I appreciate that and, and appreciate you letting me help you out with the show and having me on today, asking you some questions. This was super fun, but we've got to wrap this one up. Hope everyone enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening in. A big thank you to Generation UCAN and the Atlanta Track Club for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I have been using UCAN's Performance Energy Drink Mix before my long runs, big workouts, and races for the past four years, and it has been a super 
crucial part of my nutrition plan, providing steady energy that's easy on my gut. You can learn more about UCAN's one-of-a-kind energy at generationucan.com slash shakeout. You can save 25% on your first order using the code SHAKEOUT25. That's SHAKEOUT25. Or if you're already a UCAN fan, you can save 15% on subsequent orders with the code SHAKEOUT. No number after that one. And this year, July 4th is on a Saturday, which means you can't miss the AJC Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta, Georgia. It's the largest 10K in the world and the biggest road race in the country. Lottery registration is open right now. It closes on March 31st. As of right now, the race is still on. So if you think you want to do it, enter the lottery today because with 60,000 runners and walkers, 200,000 spectators, costumes, music, and the coveted finisher shirt, this is a bucket list race that you can't miss remember lottery registration is open right now it closes on march 31st and you can register today at ajc.com slash peach tree a lot of people ask me how they can support the show and honestly the best and easiest way is just by telling all your friends about it or posting one of your favorite episodes onto instagram twitter or facebook and telling all of your fans and followers to check it out you can also leave a rating and a review on apple podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on which helps new listeners to discover the show and it really means a lot to me you can also support my work directly on Patreon by going to themorningshakeout.com slash support. A big thank you to everyone who has done so already. Finally, before we wrap up, I'd also like to thank the man on the other side of the mic today, John Summerford of bearsrecords.com. He has edited and produced every episode of this show. He made the music himself and generally just keeps this thing running smoothly week in and week out. Also, thank you to Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales and Jeffrey Stern for editorial and social media assistance. If you're digging the podcast, sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. All right, that's it. This was a long one. Thanks for hanging with us these last couple hours. I'm Mario Fraioli, and you have been listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Mm-hmm.